it is an absolutely stunning film like it's it is one of the most beautifully shot films of all times it looks incredible it's just it's so pleasurable to watch Welcome to Cinema Italia, a podcast dedicated to the world of Italian cinema. Presented by me, John Bleasdale. and welcome to season two episode two of cinema italia and i am here with neil fox who is a podcaster and academic you can hear his podcasting on the cinematologists podcast with dario lenares and he's here to talk to me about or to talk with me sorry about bernardo bertolucci's 1970 film the conformist hi neil hello it's lovely to see you and yeah thanks for having me on to talk about this movie yeah what what was your first experience of bernardo bertolucci did you was this the first bertolucci film you saw or 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 was it another this was i think the first one certainly the first one that i kind of realized um i hadn't seen the the little buddha or anything like that the kind of the, the 90s mainstream release stuff i hadn't seen i grew up in luton which didn't have any kind of film culture in the sort of 80s and 90s so I went to university to study films sort of after getting kind of, you know, it was someone I never really thought about. And then in the when I was at college, I had a, a really nice teacher, you know, as, as, as a lot of this stuff, who was like, you know, you seem really into film, you know, maybe you should think about studying film. And I was like, can you study film? And apparently you could even even back in the 90s. So so I went to uni and <clears throat> one of the one of the modules on the film course was national cinema. And it was a way of looking at kind of national cinemas through a particular country. And the country was Italy. So, you know, kind of went through sort of early Italian film, um, you know, neorealism, you know, lots of different stuff. And then and then there was a kind of week on sort of not auteurs, because obviously Fellini was was sort of before that in terms of like, you know, the prominent Italian. But then there was a week and it was something like kind of art house auteur and kind of like the European art house tradition that was kind of emerging in sort of the you know in the the mid to late 60s through an italian lens and then and they showed us the conformist and it's high you know it's hyperbole to say that it altered the course of my life but it, it it really did you know because it was it was the first time that i was at uni where i was seeing a film i had no idea this film even existed and even up to that point a lot of the stuff had been the canonical stuff which i'd heard about or read about in kind of you know very mainstream film books and things and then all of a sudden there's this film which just is absolutely it's just it's it's so different it's kind of it it opened up what what film could be and yeah it just I, I never looked back after that film so it was it's remained you know one of my favorite films I was I'm so annoyed with myself 
um, because when I did my sight and sound list, it was kind of like 11 or 12. And I kind of downplayed because it meant so much to me personally. I was like, maybe, you know, so then I rewatched it for this. And I was like, oh, man, like, it's just it's it's just one of the best films ever made, I think. Like, so <laughs> so hopefully they'll ask me again and I'll put I'll put, you know, a film by another uh, another white man, another dead white man into the- <laughs> Into the mix. I should have put Roland Emmerich's Independence Day sequel. <laughs> <laughs> that that can go. That's that's number eleven now. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So that that's how I came to it. And then it's weird because I I've I've seen a lot of Bertolucci since, but 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 for me it 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 kind of stands apart in his filmography. But but just in general, I think it's just it's a kind of towering work. I think. Um, and even even particularly now, maybe even so, it's, it just still feels completely, completely perfect in terms of what it's saying and how it's saying it. Well, I, to tell you the truth, I think the the um, situation at the moment is that we've had two episodes of uh, Cinema Italia, and both of them seem to link very closely to what's happening at the moment in the world. First one was mm. Battle of Algiers, which yeah. uh, you can't help but watch and 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 see what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, to today and obviously today we're talking about fascism essentially and uh and the rise of the uh far right today or it's not even the rise of the far right today they're at a point that might be their apotheosis um, they might have further to go or they might this might be the high watermark uh you know yeah, they're yeah, they're yeah. kind of at the top maybe um especially in italy we have uh georgia maloney who's uh um belongs to Fratelli d'Italia, a, gov- a party which has its roots deeply into the far right. And uh, earlier this week, um, several hundred people gathered uh, to commemorate deaths of uh, some Nazi uh, party members, uh, fascist party members, and they all gave the Rome- what's called the Roman salute, which is uh, essentially what the rest of Europe would think of as a Nazi salute, but mm. was originated in Italy. Uh, uh, with Mussolini's party. Um, I thought it might be a good place to start if if you sort of, especially because not everybody will have seen the film uh, who's listening to this, to sort of give an idea of the story, a sort of spoiler-free idea of the story, first of all. Okay, yeah. So Jean-Louis, uh, and I don't know how to say, I've never known how to say his name. Trinignon. Yeah, seems pretty good. Jean-Louis Trinignon plays a yeah kind of like a fixer essentially for um the the fascist party um and at the start of the film he's sort of being integrated into the fascist party and he's 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 already kind of got this reputation for being someone who who will who will do whatever it takes um you know and kind of has you know sort of no moral compass in terms of like who what he'll do for the you know for the for the greater good as it's kind of pitched to him um so in the, in the early sequences he's kind of he's it what's really interesting is he's kind of both integrating into that and then and preparing to be married um mm. the film does really interesting things around institutions the institution of the church the institution of marriage and the institution of the fascist party or, or or like organized politics but certainly kind of you know fascism as a kind of ruling idea uh, and demo- and at the time kind of you know the the political way not just a not just an opposition but actually the kind of the political mandate so he is then asked to 
um, he's asked to travel to Paris to um, basically kind of meet, scope out, and ultimately get rid of um, his old philosophy professor from when he was a, he was an undergrad. Um, and so he does it under the sort of the the priest of a kind of a, of a honeymoon um and he travels with his wife but this is all kind of like you know way into the film it's a very slow burn film but essentially that's the plot and he goes to he goes to paris but but what what it triggers in terms of the storytelling is his kind of reckoning with his past which you think is you would you'd assume is just around being an undergraduate who's interested in philosophy because obviously the the um the the professor he's going to, to talk about is, is a kind of is a marxist is a marxist kind of left wing um and has has fled italy uh because of fascism uh, unable to work feels like they you know they were, were not happy about working under the rise of of fascism so they're sort of ended up in paris um and a part of a kind of yeah sort of anti-fascist resistance um so he's has so and 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 the the assumption is that he's much closer to that or he was much closer to that in his youth um and now has to kind of go and reckon with with those ideals but but the opening up of that kind of opens up a whole other reckoning for him which is in a deeper past childhood trauma and this kind of very playful suggestion which i think the film does really interesting in terms of like how do you get to be the kind of person that would essentially be a hitman for the fascist party and it's it, it suggests that kind of there's this incident when he's very young sort of around his sexuality um and sexual uh, sex and violence in a very kind of sort of primal way um that he then instantly represses uh, um and kind of you know but the film is really good on is he repressing an actual trauma of kind of being homosexual or is it kind of is that is there something else going on but but it comes out in terms of thinking oh it's just it's an easy an easy label to attach, which is, oh, you know, a repressed homosexual, so represses everything and comes. But the film never never answers that question definitively. It's very oblique, but but really interesting in terms of, particularly towards the end. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the plot. Um, I won't spoil it in terms of where it heads. It heads to one of the most chilling sequences in cinema. Um, Both literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively, yeah, on a kind of snowy, snowy road. Um, but yeah, it's... It's it's a really complex film, but carries its complexity kind of I think quite lightly in terms of like it's just it's so rich in terms of the storytelling that you feel so much. And I got three sort of three pages of notes in terms of like what what's going on, what's it about, how does it all fit together? Um and it's not confusing, but it's just it's really enigmatic in a kind of really wonderful way. Um, and yeah, Jean-Louis Trintignant is Trintignant is just absolutely inscrutable for the most part, like a really kind of classic stoic hitman in that kind of classic Melvillian sixties mode, you know, just like what is going on, you know, in, in his head kind of thing. And yeah, it's great. His uh, like motivation for joining the fascist or his stated motivation right at the beginning is um, that he wants to be normal. And mm. that and that normality is can be sexuality. It can be he wants to conform. Well, I mean, it's in the title. He wants yeah, to conform yeah, yeah. to an idea of the bourgeoisie. Um, I always get the idea that he's kind of a rich. He's a rich kid who doesn't really need to work or do anything. You know, he's you know the mother's got a large house and a servant and a chauffeur, 
Um, but he's he's just loose in the world, and he he even you know says he's getting married because he wants to be normal, and you you know there's no um, uh, there's no sense that he he really loves his wife. Far from it. There's a sense mm. that he's he kind of despises her. I mean, there's a brilliant scene in a church where he's giving a confession, and he says to the priest, "She's mediocre. She has no ideas," you know, mm. and she's sitting praying like in shot as yeah, as yeah. he's saying this so the film has this sort of um coldness that uh that that, that this is a really unlikable character for sure yeah absolutely and yeah that kind of constant repetition of wanting to be normal is kind of like me think he doth protest too much you know and like ev in every situation that he seeks it the church the marriage the fascist part he's, he's, he's just deeply unhappy he's clearly running away from huge emotional issues um and like he hates his mum. you know they've got a really weird relationship um and his dad's kind of uh in a uh sanatorium um and you know is kind of going through a, a he's obviously had a huge reckoning with his own past culpabilities in terms of you know being a tool of the state in terms of state sanctioned violence and he's just absolutely broken by it and there's a really weird scene where yeah Trinidad kind of goes to see him and sort of goads him as if to say I'm kind of I'm better than you it's not going to happen to me I'm not going to be broken by this like it's really weird um but yeah he's just he is a kind of despicable character um but it's one of the great kind of kind of Sort of one of the magic things about cinema isn't it that you, the way you put this stuff together you can just have something be so fascinating and interesting that you end up kind of just really wanting to get into you want to get through that that shell um even though at every turn it's kind of you know saying you know just just stay away um, yeah, yeah. You would, you don't want to be in a room with this guy necessarily, no, but but then no. again, you don't want to be in a room with Travis Bickle. You don't want to be in a room with Jake LaMotta. You know, the this yeah. this is a period of 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 men who are deeply problematic, and and films which are brave enough to take on these characters and um, yeah. not not force you to like them, not not give you any sort of in necessarily. No, I. I wrote an I wrote an essay at, at university about the Conformist and the Godfather Part Two. Mm. It was interesting because I've got the um, I think it's the Arrow Blu-ray, um, and on the first line it says is like huge influence on Godfather Part Two. Um, and I was like, yeah, I know. I wrote about that in the nineties um, for, <laughs> for, a, for a, a very mediocre undergrad essay. Um, but it was interesting how the two films were, were seen very kind of thematically linked in terms of someone has ended up in a position of great, you know, ultimate power, really, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, it's over, you know, power over life and death. Um, and doesn't really understand how they've got there in terms of like the, the beats, but kind of deep down knows that, yeah, that this was always, this is always going to end up because that's kind of how they've been wired by family, by society, by, you know, just an inability to, an inability to 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 step away from the norm um and and just the the destiny of it just feels really powerful in terms of these characters um uh but it makes them interesting because they're because the films present 
their reflection on it, even mm. if it's kind of untrustworthy or ultimately doesn't show anything. The process of seeing characters through the construction of the film, engaging with the part, their own past and trying to put it all together or, you know, kind of almost their past being presented outside of their control. You know, they're just, it's just there, almost a kind of Freudian level of just, it's, it's always there is really fascinating but yeah they're just it is that era as well isn't it of just yeah kind of toxic masculinity kind of writ large mm. for the first mm. time in cinema in a kind of really concerted way and it's interesting as well this is happening not just in america but but obviously you know a lot of european cinema is doing similar things um i think it's interesting as well how uh you know to talk about talk about that idea of the past that the film happens you know almost entirely in flashback and you have um, you know, you have this journey uh, that begins the film and and going goes throughout the film. That it keeps going back to this journey, going back to this this essentially a, 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 a car chase, a, a mm, unbeknownst yeah. to the to the victims, perhaps. Um, one thing um, I I'd like to note um, now because I I think right now. If you're listening to this, if you've never seen the film, and by the way, we are going to spoil things, so it's not, uh, and I don't think spoilers are necessarily that big a deal anyway, so I'm not, uh, we've tried not to be egregious so far, so if you really get upset by that, stop listening but and come back when you've seen the film, but otherwise, uh, from now on, we're, we're going to you know, lose those restraints. Uh, one thing I really wanted to say is that at the moment, it sounds like, this sounds heavy, this sounds heavy work, why would I watch this? But First of all, the film looks amazing. And uh, the cinematographer who, of course, then goes on to work with Coppola, uh, Vittorio Storaro, um, I think he makes one of the most fascinatingly colourful films mm. um, of the 1970s. This, there's a colour... It's almost become a cliche now, that sort of teal and orange, uh, teal and red, sort of blue... Uh, you know, there's a shot of the Eiffel Tower in this, which is just like the best shot of the Eiffel Tower in cinema ever. You know, it, yeah. it's just got that misty blue Parisian feel to it. You know, Paris in the winter. Mm. Um, the way the camera is moved by uh, Storare, that it's constantly moving in and moving out, and it's doing these. It's, it's constantly drawing your attention to the fact that you're watching this. It's not. Um, a documentary it's it's tracking shots mm. and it's very formal and in fact it's i think it's to some degree taking as its cue the fascist architecture through which um uh john louis trignon actually to stop myself from constantly referring to him by the actor's name marcello marcello Mar yeah. yeah yeah marcello uh clerici's uh moving through I mean, that's what that's one of the abiding ironies of the film as well, is that this uh, guy wants normality in a time which is surreally abnormal. You know, there's, mm. a, there's yeah. nothing normal about the things he wants to conform to. No, no, but it's about repressing everything that you don't feel comfortable with, isn't it? Like, that's mm. why that's why he's the perfect person for that, because he wants to repress everything in himself. So he's happy to go out and repress it in everyone else um, until it becomes trickier um through the narrative yeah i mean it is an absolutely stunning film like it's it is one of the most beautifully shot 
films of all times. It looks incredible. It's just it's so pleasurable to watch. Um, all the Dutch angles that Storaro kind of like every kind of camera decision feels completely revealing in terms of subtext. Like it's just it's so beautifully designed. And then yeah, that this kind of really interesting engagement with yeah kind of modernist um italian architecture that obviously became symptomatic with fascism in terms of the you know Mussolini and sort of pre-war pre-world war ii is just like absolutely incredible and i was thinking about all the you know because it is a very influential film so when i was re-watching it, i was thinking about where where does it pop up in terms of influence and i think it's really interesting because i was re-watching a lot of it thinking it's very close to wells is the trial you know it feels very much like Storaro's kind of drawing from that kind of his kind of kafkaesque approach but but then modern films i'm thinking you know it's 12 monkeys gilliam must be a huge fan of this like it's mm. got particularly the sanatorium scene but also just as you were saying there the kind of the construction of times you know almost like as you're watching it you realize that all of these time periods that you're spending a little bit of time in are all going to barrel in barrel into the present at some point you know it's so mm. well constructed as a as a kind of as a as a as a non-linear narrative um and then even as you were saying that i was like oh that's a dunkirk that's the dunkirk trick isn't it you know like yeah. um you know but so outside of it being heavy you know it has so much cinematic pleasure in it you know um the score's fantastic um the performances are great and it's just it's effortless i think and it's so weird to to think of a film that's about so much really heavy material just it just feels like everything's just clicking um absolutely yeah um and yeah the the melville qualities i think are really interesting as well in terms of you know just that kind of lone existential anti-hero um at the center of it you know which is i love that stuff anyway so i think it's a film that's always tapped into that for me as well yeah that like the samurai you're thinking of uh and ellen the samurai yeah 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 yeah. um yeah i mean i i would i mean the thing is he's he's not that there's a bit of me that i that that i was when i was re-watching it i was sort of thinking he's not this hitman he's this um He's this guy who kind of wants to to be maybe the hitman because he was bullied as a child and because he was you know, and and he's and he's kind of that's not him really. He's sort of forcing himself into that frame. I don't yeah, know. If that's that... where it gets spoilery, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. because <laughs> yeah. you're right. Because because the film reveals that he's not the person he thinks he is. Mm. You know, he thinks he does something when he's young. Mm. that kind of almost he sort of uses as his as an excuse to to follow the path and in the very very end of the film it's revealed that it that wasn't what happened um and also it that what's interesting about it as the as the film progresses and as they get to paris and there's this um this is really great character called manganello who's just kind of always lurking around and you realize that the fascist party don't think that he's that person either. Yes. Because they they don't send him off to do the deed. They send him off to basically prepare the way. Yes. And 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 work and and basically kind of they use his 
essentially his, his weakness and his closeness to the professor as a way of setting up the thing that's going to happen and he is absolutely impotent in the in the in the in the act of it which is so interesting in terms of how the film has been built up to make you think that he's going to go and that he's going to have this crisis of conscience about whether he's going to do it or not and ultimately the fascist party don't expect him to do it they're fully prepared for him not to do it and that they want they don't want him to do it anyway because you know oh they'd like him to do it but they're not reliant on it they don't they don't and they don't think that he's that person which is so interesting in terms of yeah his search for something is is ultimately denied there as well um and then yeah that the end is just is he's just he's just a shell he's a husk of a person um as the um as the kind of world falls around in both his own world and then the the external world when sort of um Mussolini is uh is sort of ousted I, I mean, I think that from the very get-go, you're you're in this world that that it has layers of um, of mystery to it, and 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 the sense that you're constantly discovering things, which is, uh, takes the ground from under you a little bit, and it's doing it in a way which is kind of mischievous and witty. I mean, my mm. rewatch of this, the thing I think I was most surprised about was how funny I found the film. You know, you the first time you you well, you see the, the the character first of all in Paris, and he's sort of preparing to go out and and um, and follow the prof- his old professor with Manganiello, who's this you know amazing sort of slightly apish looking man with this goatee, you know, um, played by Gastone Moskin, and um, but then when you see him sort of in the flashback, he's like uh, in a, a, a radio studio and they're singing a song about the song's something about like, um, are you really happy or something? There's yeah, a, yeah, there's yeah. A re- it's got yeah. a really on the nose lyric yeah, yeah. about what makes you happy. And yeah. the person he's talking to is this sort of old friend and this old intellectual who sort of has the similar, uh, it reminded me of La Dolce Vita with uh, Mastroianni's sort of best friend, the novelist, who is sort mm. of like the, in, the one he can sort of actually talk deeply about deep things. And then you you kind of suddenly get surprised by realizing oh he's blind mm. this guy's blind and, and he hasn't been um and am i supposed to think of that as an as a metaphor that the intellectual of the fascist party is this blind guy who can't you know or is that too simple or where am i here and and um, I think uh, at that point, uh, Clarici falls asleep on a chair and he wakes up and someone's sitting right in front of him. And it's like, is it so is the rest of the film a dream now or something? Yeah, yeah. Is it, there's just so many things. And when he goes and sees his mother, she's covered in puppy dogs, mm. you know, for no apparent reason. Yeah. And and he says, "Cover yourself up. You're always naked in front of me." <laughs> and it, it's every little thing is. Um, you know, they call the chauffeur trees because that's yeah. what his name in Japanese is, but they call it in Italian. They're like, Alberi, Alberi, trees, <laughs> trees. And it's just like, there's just surrealness, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and he and he gets the, the maniello to sort of beat up and uh, get rid of the chauffeur, who's also yeah. his mother's lover. And when the mum comes out looking for him, he sort of kicks the, the. He's like, "Oh, where could he possibly be?" And he sees the guy's hat on the ground and kicks it under the car to get rid of it. I mean, it's it's got elements of like very broad comedy, and yeah. then you'll get this shot 
of like the camera chasing the leaves uh, up up the drive, and you'll just think that's one of the best shots I've ever seen. That's so yeah. that's so luscious, and yeah. and and there's this tension between this guy who's living this kind of empty, spiritually empty existence where he's trying to shrink his own life so it will fit in a hole that even the people who were fascists don't really believe in, mm. in the context of this gorgeously realized world around him that yeah. that he seems to be, you know, bafflingly indifferent to. Yeah, and then he has that really interesting relationship with the the wife of the professor, um, when he gets to Paris and it's a really messy and complicated sort of tryst that they have, you know, there's a kind of the classic, you know, attraction and repel, you know, being attracted and repelled in the, in the same instance on both sides, like, you know, and it's, it's a really messy thing and it's, it just seems impossible, even though there's a kind of clear attraction for them to, to, to to make it work which is kind of very telling yeah it, it's a, it is it's really funny and playful in parts there's the scene in the where they, they have the blind the blind group that his friend is part of throw a kind of weird bachelor party for him um for Marcello. um and it's just the worst party ever and why why to, have a buffet <laughs> I, mean, I know it's just it's like hilarious. you know have we got other biscuits here you know it's like... and one of the one of the one of the blind patrons just sings really kind of gaudily, which he obviously does a lot because another blind patron just gets really annoyed and they try and have this fist fight. <laughs> it is really funny. Um, and yeah, it does. It, it kind of shifts tone without ever feeling like it doesn't know what it's doing. Um, it's so hard to do. It's so hard to have those kinds of layers of tones um, in a piece and not make it feel kind of disjointed, but it never feels, it always feels like, yeah, that the world is so richly observed that it all fits fits really really well um it also has this great line which i which i which i loved um which kind of says quite a lot which someone says um it's to him like you know you seem really serious or you seemed like really serious when you were young kind of thing and the professor just says you know really serious people because like yeah you should laugh more you know you should you know take it easy you, you take things too seriously and he says i am a serious person or something and the professor says really serious people are never serious which i just thought was so bang mm. on um and again spoke really really loudly to to the moment now you know where it's just like that that felt very resonant with the kind of the tenor of discourse that seems to be pervasive now you know that there's either you're hiding something or yeah like it's not acknowledging that all of this stuff kind of coexists and that you know we need levity we need to be serious but also like this idea that you can't have or experience joy or pleasure um and obviously that's one of the big problems with is that he you know he's he's uncomfortable with his own pleasures and his own sense of joy so he's kind of repressing it um and the film offers him all these opportunities there's that great sequence where which is also really funny where he's kind of he goes to get the information that he needs um in this he's sort of taken out to this weird place and this guy's just cracking a load of walnuts <laughs> on his desk <laughs> like this kind of like almost yeah sort of lieutenant um in this that, huge room and something it's just paul thomas anderson might do yeah exactly yeah. it's just like what is this and it just there's no there's no context beforehand 
and nothing like it ever happens again. And you're just left with that lingering sense of what, what was, did I see that scene? Um, it's yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's full of these details. And I, I remember, you know, you were talking earlier about how it changes. It, it has all these different layers and different things, but it's not, it never feels like the film doesn't know. I mean, it's brazen in its confidence. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, this obviously isn't Bertolucci's first film. He's been making a whole bunch of films. In fact, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's a very famous international filmmaker by the time he, he uh, is making this uh, movie. Um, there's, there's a scene where he's, uh, uh, Clarici is being introduced to the minister that looks like something out of a Hollywood screwball comedy and reminds me of sort of um, Coen Brothers, where they're turning to yeah. him to say, oh, the minister's ready to, oh, we're very excited about this. And it's like a tracking shot as it goes. So they're like turning to the camera as, they're, as a camera and they are moving towards the minister's desk, which is, of course, half a mile in the distance yeah. uh, in terms of how these huge fascist spaces. And yeah. when he goes to these fascist palazzi, these palaces of, of various government ministers and things, there are just people hanging around who are you know look looking fascist dressed fascistically and and you know but but with no no as you say no context given it's just the absurdity of the times yeah 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 and there's no sense that there's a kind of machinery of any it's just like it's just it's just a few people knocking about um yeah and kind of yeah, it's that that that's really. Good. I think the Coen Brothers reference is 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 interesting. So I think I wrote down Miller's Crossing at one point. It's like a proxy. Mm, you know, mm. Just again, you just feel the the cinematic kind of reach of it all throughout. There is, a, I think, in the um, in the the Arrow sort of writing, sort of the essay in there. There's a um, there's a note on it. Um, the, oh, it's, it's, it's an interview with Bertolucci and he says about the conformities that the point of departure is cinema and 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 Wells in particular Wells and von Sternberger is kind of references but it is the film where it kind of it's it's acknowledged that he's kind of stepping out of the shadow of Godard you know who's his absolute hero and his, mm. his early work is kind of indebted to the French new wave much more than to the you know, to the to neorealism and then this is him kind of striding out on his own and sort of saying here i am with my own set of ideas and influences which is fascinating to take such a such a potent story um in terms of italian history to sort of to say you know as in it, it kind of places him as this kind of global auteur in his own right while also sort of stamping his mast on or his mark on on a really kind of hot hot piece of italian history it's really interesting that you know the politics of it which are very murky are kind of are front and center in it rather than subtextual rooted in the in you know in in kind of a few characters here and there it's like it's it's a bold it's a bold statement in every sense um i mean the funny thing about that that moving away from goddard is of course goddard made this is an adaptation of an alberto moravia novel it's got music by Georges Delarue and Godard made Le Mépris, Contempt, which is an adaptation of an Alberto Moravia novel and had music by Georges Delarue. So he's, and was very colourful. I mean, which, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, I would, I, I, uh, but that's, that's by no means a counter to your point. I think sometimes you kind of, uh, the Harold Bloom, the anxiety of influence, you kill your forebears, you know, mm. you, 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 you don't 
kill them by running away. You kill them by getting in close and, and yeah, beating, sure. beating them on their own ground. The other point I'd like to make about the politics is it's very easy to watch this and go, ah, 1970s cinema dealing with uh, the war and pre-war. But this would the, be the equivalent today of making a film about the early 90s. Mm. You know, it's yeah. it's not for the 1970s. This this is we're talking about what did what did dad do? You know, we're yeah. not talking about yeah, yeah. what did granddad do? Um, and Italy did not have a denazification process. Ninety uh, percent of the police, over ninety percent of the police pre pre fascist were still in their posts post war. So um, you were. There was, there is, there was, and there is. Sorry, a um, uh, still to some degree, a partisan culture, and the old Bella Ciao and the the you know and Bertolucci's coming from a sort of communist background and um, from a very privileged sort of background as well. His brother is a poet, a recognized poet, very very famous poet in his own right as a screenwriter to some and as well. And, um, you know, Moravia would be someone who had lunch with the family, was a friend of the mm. family. So this is a very cultured sort of, uh, I think he's from Pisa originally. I'm not sure what the, but he's he's one of the, um, uh, he's not sort of, you know, making his name out of the, out of nowhere. No, no. Um, he's one of the privileged, is I, I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, He's he's upper upper bourgeoisie. Let's use that as an old fashioned term. Um, but he's very very engaged. It have you did you see uh, nineteen hundred? His um, yeah yes. Because I think that's also an interesting film. Because unlike this film, I think that's much to some degree much less disciplined, but also not equally fascinating. But but pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating <laughs> movie. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Agree with that, yeah. I, I, I don't know whether he ever ever hit the same level of control in terms of everything just work, you know, again, but doesn't mean he didn't make some really fantastic and interesting work. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think that you can sort of see the personal in there in terms of the, the, you know, the, the kind of the discomfort of being from that background, which Marcello has, you know, the kind of the questioning of like wanting to reject, it's obviously why he ends up studying philosophy at, university and you know but but can never really shake that he is part of that he never really talks about it but you get the sense he's kind of uncomfortable in those spaces and in that kind of family lineage um and yeah it's interesting what you're saying in terms of like the the process that italy went through after after the the sort of the fall of the fascist party and at that time um because the film does such a beautiful job at the end of showing which kind of, you know, is 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 one of the truest points it makes, which is, you know, the the fascists essentially take the badge off and join the throng of the revolution. You know, it's just it's so simple, like that, and the revolution doesn't even, you know, he's much less sort of shouting fascist. He's this person fascist, but the person just gets sort of subsumed. It's not, it's not a, and you can see how easy it is to just switch sides, and how so much of it is just kind of going along with the norm or going along with what's ruling or what feels dominant at the time in order for you know i are ultimately a yeah, kind of the 
the machinations of a few people in big rooms um to to take root and to take and that's that's exactly what Marcello's doing he's just following along he's not he doesn't believe in fascism you know he doesn't believe in anything um he can't commit to anything fully he can't commit to himself um and then yeah like when it's over everything just carries on you know and there's and he you know I won't give away what happens to him at the very end, which is really, it's not what you expect. Um, but yeah, his friend, the blind is just kind of carried along and it's like everything else, like you say, unless there's, there was no reckoning, No, you know, it's just, it's just, we move. So of course it's, and those, those people are probably not fascists in the way that we would think of fascists. They were people who, you know, went along with the fascist doctrine and, lived their life or worked in the you know with civil servants for the oh, fascist that, party you know that, like it's, it's it's more complicated isn't it and the film does a good job of that i mean 30 percent of the population of italy or the, the voting population i should say or those who voted last election voted for a fascist party and and that means mm. loads of people i know did i mean there's no doubt about it yeah, loads yeah. of people i know did i used to play football first arrived in italy with uh five, five aside and uh there was a guy from rome whose nickname was Fiamma, uh, Flames. And it, it comes from the idea of the, the torch and, the, you know, and so it was because he was a fascist and people would, Paolo Di Cagno, uh, you know, mm. is, uh, you know, has you know is fairly openly a fascist and and you know i mean it was slightly controversial when he came to england but mm. it's absolutely not not controversial here there's not a sense yeah. of his you know that that would kind of rule him out and it's not the same thing as i don't know gunter grass everybody discovering he was in the ss kind of that mm. was like okay that now we're going to have to reassess everything yeah you know we had famous journalists like Indro Montanelli, who was in the fascist party and, you know, was on television again when I was, it was an anti Berlusconi intellectual when I uh, turned up and it was like, well, hang on, wait, what? Yeah. You know, <laughs> Roberto Rossellini made kind of propaganda films for the, for the fascists um, and then headed new wave um, neorealism in the, uh, uh, as soon as the war was over with films, which were, regarded as being highly critical of of the fascists so yeah it's 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 very 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 messy and even though i i'm not talking i'm not asking for any sort of moral relativism I, you know i i would argue that i i feel very strongly in in in, a, in one direction um I do, you know, it's it's films like this and it's and it's sort of life experience that makes you sort of go, okay, it's not just, you know, they're not they're not monsters, you know, there's they're they're people, they're confused, damaged people, just the same way I'm confused and damaged. Yeah, and you know, the film is as as you know, to go back to that thing in terms of what, what happens towards the end, you, you realize that that is something that is preyed on within but it's also preyed on within you know the church catholicism you mm. know like church praise the church preys on a kind of weakness of you know speak you know you can tell i'm a, a recovering catholic um <laughs> you and me uh, brother <laughs> yeah um but but it but it's in you know that the, there is this sense of like yeah kind of exploiting weakness or exploiting vulnerability exploiting exploiting even like things like confusion you know um and creating a sense of what is normal and then everything else is not is abnormal um 
and with such a power that you don't you don't a lot of people just you know you don't question it you know you just kind of you get scared you get fearful so you just you just kind of tag along um but what's great about the conformist is that it does not it's not an easy um uh it's not um it's not preachy and it's not like it doesn't have an easy um oh, my words are gone until it's friday evening um, <laughs> solution yeah yeah or, or, or it's not saying it's it's not very it's not it's not saying it's this or it's this you mm. know it's not saying like oh these are weak people you know marcello is not a character who you know it it's 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 really really adept at bringing to the surface so many sort of yeah kind of parallels connections layers where you realize oh, actually yeah that this is we live in a very complicated world you know it's very very complex and it's it's easy even just laid out like this in a way that is may or may not be true to see how someone goes from you know spoiled kid socialist fascist and it just doesn't say that's an easy route but it sort of just suggests that you know of course this stuff happens all the time because mm, mm. there's all these things at play which is in him in society in his relationships like it's everywhere and we are all we are all at the mercy of that and we are impacted in it different ways. Um, and it, it's not about good or bad. These are not good or bad people. Like you say, they're just, they're people doing bad things. Um, mm. And they don't even know. And he, it, what's, that's what's interesting about this character. He doesn't even know why he's doing it. Mm. And he's a bad character and he seems interested or at least kind of curious about it, but, not to the point where he's actually going to do anything about it, which makes but, him a great movie character. <laughs> there's an amazing, there's an amazing bit where he's they're on the way for what is essentially a political assassination, and he's sort of the the, the situation. And this is going to be spoilery again, so apologies for anybody uh, who who's still with us who cares about that. But um, what has complicated things is the professor they're supposed to be assassinating has also taken along his wife, and it's the wife mm. who. Um, he has more of an emotional connection to who by the way is played by uh the french actress uh dominique sander who the same year as this came out was also the star of a film called il giardino di finzi contini the garden of the finzi contini's um uh, which uh, was directed by Vittorio uh, De Sica, and which is an amazing film. If anybody fancies mm. doing an episode on that, okay. I'd, that's an, that's what I, I've watched it very recently. And she plays a kind of, um, she just has this kind of beauty, which is which the uh, talking about this being a beautiful film. Both her and uh, Stefania Sandrelli, who plays the wife of um, of Marcello are filmed beautifully and and i think it's important to say that there that Bertolucci, um although his reputation has taken something of a battering perhaps uh with good reason recently uh he he's a, an erotic filmmaker he knows yeah. he, he is interested in sex and he is interested in how to film and there's a scene with um uh, uh sandrelli and um sander when they 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 have this um dance of the tango in a in a in a cafe in paris and it's so charged and it's again just so beautiful to watch mm. and it's also what is about to be destroyed you know what is going to be 
ruined and, and not appreciated. He, he, look, here is life right in front of you, and you're so busy worrying about other things, and you know that you're you're missing this. Mm. Um, but anyway, the bit that I wanted to say is he, that Marcello at one point um, stops the car and gets out and sort of walks around for a bit and then the car's like following him and he doesn't and he's there's a suggestion that he basically continues with the murder because he can't think of a way of getting back to paris you know it's it's just as simple as that it's, what am i gonna do my shoes are wet my feet are wet yeah. it's cold okay i'll come with you and and participate in this then yeah and that's something i've never really understood even watching this time because that's something that he does throughout like he does it earlier on and in the past like in a flashback he's kind of being followed by his driver which obviously has a has a, has another residence which which becomes mm. apparent um but he's kind of like walking while being the like oh yeah the car is sort of slowing down and it's it's, it's a weird thing and it happens sort of two or three times and it's just like what it's does he feel comfortable or safe doing it you know is he kind of working stuff out like it's 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 very very ambiguous um but but again just it looks great you know because it's just so well shot um and because it kind of comes up two or three times it kind of it, it feels like it's woven in um really interesting ways um isn't it maybe yeah. neil is it maybe like part of his ultimate indecisiveness i mean this is a guy who just ha hasn't made his mind up and he, he yeah, even goes into the kit yeah. he even goes into the kitchen at one point where uh, the the guy Maniello uh, is is you know he's is following the targets and he pulls a gun on the guy who's supposed to be his bodyguard his accomplice and uh, and at that point his his fascist sort of accomplice says to him okay you, this is a war and you're you're going to be a deserter if you you don't do what's going so it's just like at that point the power begins to shift as well that he mm. feels oh maybe I have to do this now. Yeah, I think that indecisiveness is a nice is a nice phrase for it. I think, yeah, because it's just, yeah, yeah. The you know the film sort of reveals that he's never he's never been in this position before. Whatever he's done before, mm. this is kind of different, and he can't. He, there's just so much. The sort of film almost crowds him, you know, through the flashbacks, through the past through family, through the marriage, or sort of crowds him with all this stuff, which he just can't ignore. He's not on his own. And he's surround he has actively surrounded himself with all these people. And now he has to do this thing, which, you know, in every other movie you watch, is always the thing. It's always the thing that gets the lone hitman or the lone wolf is other people, you know, like uh, they're fine on their own. They do three or four kills. Then they meet a kid or they meet a woman or, you know, you know, yeah, they meet a nun and they're like, oh, maybe there's something. I need, to, you know, and it just, it just other people just messes everything, messes everything up. But you can't escape other people, um, you know, and he can't escape other people. Um, and he's got that kind of push pull of, yeah, I want to be normal, but also, I I don't fit in anywhere, you mm. know. Mm. Um, but lovely. I mean, I, I mean, I think you know, in contrast to something like um, Le Samurai or you know, most recently David Fincher's The Killer. Um, this sort of figure of the hitman is a, like is 
I mean, it is kind of fascistic in it, in and of itself, but it is a sort of fantasy figure of like, wouldn't yeah. it be great if I just could go around killing people and I would, I'd have a dead bird in a cage and that'd be the only thing I'd have, or a little plant like Leon and I put it out and and every and that's all. I don't have any other human connections, and it's kind of a fantasy of strength, specifically male fantasy. I mean, I know we have Nikita and we have other things, so it's sometimes turned on its head. But um, mainly it's that. I think this is a really different. I think this is totally different. I mean, I think he looks similar. He has the hat and he has the coat pulled up to his throat and things like that. It has that sleekness. But he's he's a kind of clerk who wants, you know, he's a, as I say, he's a bourgeois guy who's who sort of wants to be important in some way. And the thing that's really interesting, right at the beginning, the, the sort of fascist sort of... Um, entry-level guy who he wakes up and who is watching him sleep rather creepily um says to him i understand why people are fascists there's this reason mm. there's that reason but i don't get why you are you know i don't understand your um motivation you know yeah. and and in a way i think it's if you don't know who you are then you don't know why you do what you do and you don't know ultimately what you even want to do no um exactly yeah i think that's 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 nicely put um yeah just hearing you sort of talk about the kind of the the the, the sort of the figure of the hitman makes me think that a lot of the film is about un that undermining of of the iconography you know it's it takes the iconography of fascist italy you know in its architecture and its style um and you know and, and almost this kind of cinematic trope of the the lone samurai hitman kind of thing but but is is it's critiquing all of it all the time it's undermining it's saying it's not what you think it is you know mm. like even in those rooms with those people this kind they're kind of they're simultaneously terrifying in their you know just absurdity you know but it's not it's not what you think it is it's not it's not like this huge cabal of very serious men kind of dictating stuff it's just a few people dicking around uh cracking walnuts and deciding who gets to live or die um and the same with this you know he he looks like he's this kind of existential hero but really yeah he's he's not that and you know that's that's a smart smart move i think in terms of storytelling that just yeah that's it's nice to be able to talk through it and sort of see that and you because mm. i hadn't really sort of put that together watching it the other day but I, it feels like yeah there's this again like there's just so much going on and mm. none of it feels labored you know it's yeah well one of the strangest things especially with the uh with the uh minister when he goes to see the minister he sort of puts his head around the curtain and and the minister's having uh canoodling with a, a, a blonde woman on the desk and and then sort of backs out behind the curtain like polonius or somebody and then um uh that woman turns up again and again and it's mm. dominique santa uh, uh yeah. sander she's she's she plays three different roles i think in the film uh the last one being the the wife of the professor uh mm. anna and so uh, there's nothing in the film that sort of is quite as playful as that there's no yeah. necessary reason for this to happen there's no it's not sort of like this is the kind of film where you'll get one actor playing multiple roles but it just has this 
wow, who is this person? And what, mm. and, you know, is it Brechtian? Is it, um, you know, another shot when he gets off, uh, when they're on a train, there's a very obvious sort of like film background, you know, like almost like an Alfred Hitchcock in the birds kind of cinematic background outside the windows. Yeah. So, so or oh, Francis Ford Coppola in Dracula or something mm. where you're really being made aware this is a movie. What you were saying earlier about cinema, actually, this is Bertolucci saying, I am making a movie, movie, movie. I'm not like, this yeah. is not an adaptation of a novel. It is, but this isn't. It's a movie, you know? And it's yeah, yeah. Prime, that's its primary, uh, you know, art form. Yeah, that's just that's just what I was going to say. It's just, it's, 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 it's cinema, isn't it? You know, it's mm. kind of like the, what you're saying earlier in terms of like, is it a dream? Is it not? You know, it plays with dream logic all the time. It shifts around time and space, the way it uses color, you know, to denote, you know, all the feelings. Like it's very, it's yeah, kind of abundantly cinematic, you know, and just it makes it for it makes for such a yeah, it's such a pleasurable experience. Um, it's interesting that train sequence is the only time where it really feels warm for Marcello in terms of like he's present in a in a warm environment. And it's it's in between. It's that kind of classic liminal space. He's not in Italy. He's not in Paris yet. He's he's nowhere. And there's a kind of he, he feels much more at ease there than anywhere else. And it is telling that it's it's presented. Yeah, like with rear rear projection outside the window. You know, it's a very unreal, very cinematic moment. It's not a real moment for him um, because he's incapable of it. You know. Yeah. But the, the, the film gives it to him, you know, the film gives him that moment. It gives us that moment, but he can't, he couldn't do that on his own without the film <laughs> giving it to him. So even then, there's an absolutely hilarious moment where he's looking at his, uh, he's looking at his new wife and he's looking at it with sort of like obvious pleasure. And then he's looking up at the, like the luggage rack yeah. and there's like a bit of luggage like teetering on the edge and he's like looking at it with a smile on his face like oh okay this is gonna fall on their head in a minute yeah, this yeah. is fun you know and he's yeah. just like are you a complete sociopath i mean i very recently watched or re-watched mary harron's uh, american psycho and i was thinking this this could be kind of the explanation this is a this is a, a sociopath trying to work out how to be a human being mm. and and being utterly incapable of it and he's trying to fit into these slots and work out who he is and it's just okay maybe i'll be a husband maybe i'll be a lover maybe i'll be this maybe i'll be that and i think you're right to say it's not as straightforward as he's gay and he yeah. has to repress that plus it should be we should also point out that you know, in the sixties and seventies, there was a, there was this sort of like left wing prejudice of like, um, well, maybe even earlier, I, I would argue of of sort of treating homosexuality as sort of like the ultimate bourgeois corruption. You know, especially mm. Stalinist Russia, okay. this idea, which is what Putin as anti LGBTQ sort of uh, stance is kind of coming from or echoing. Um, uh, I, d I don't think that was so much the case by the 60s and 70s. And certainly Bertolucci, one of his main uh, friends and mentors was uh, Pasolini. And so, and, and I think there is some Pasolini in this film as well. Uh, and so he's not, I don't think he's, I think that a lot of Pasolini in here um, 
speaks to the complexity of what's going on. That, yeah. he, that it's not going to be just oh he's gay he's repressing it and that's why he's a fascist. Yeah, because it's not that it's not that simple in terms of the film storytelling. I think the Pasolini link is an interesting one because it's a you know if you're just paying attention to that you're not paying attention to the rest. I mean the, the train sequence is a is a great example because what turns him on in the train is hearing his wife talk about her kind of sexual awakening coming of age with a kind of older man when she was very young you know it's a very erotically charged sequence where more of what might be you know his sexuality kind of is allowed to percolate and then later in paris anna and julia so his wife and the professor's wife share this incredibly intimate moment where julia's drunk and anna's sort of helping dress her and Anna senses that he's outside that Marcello's outside the door he can't be seen he's sort of in the shadows Julia's oblivious and and then you know sort of Anna takes control in terms of this kind of sapphic moment um which feels very natural for her and it sort of prefigures the tango scene beautifully Mm. but Mm. there's all of this stuff which is like what does he like and it's not a symbol that he's you know we never know but it could be anything that Mm. it's about sexuality in the round and one of his experiences is, um, is, is, you know, is a homosexual experience. One is, you know, this kind of, you know, voyeuristic experience that we, the, of what we're kind of privy to. And one is, yeah, this kind of transgressive experience of learning about his wife with another man, but when she was, you know, you know, in, in her teens kind of thing. So there's a lot of really, like you say, he's, he's very comfortable presenting sex in these really, kind of complex and but but very charged ways you know like it's a very sensual movie um and it's presented seriously but not you know but not exploitatively or yeah and again it woven into who is this character and these kind of little revelations are so so well told cinematically while also being again very pleasurable you know Mm. they're just they're just great sequences um from a filmmaking point of view I love the I love it after you've had this wonderful scene of the of the uh tango, it then becomes a conga line. And yeah. then Stefania and then Stefania Sandrelli. And I love her. I think her performance in this uh is amazing as they sort of bubbly wife who is um thinks that she's marrying this sort of man of good character and good family and she's taking a step up and she's got this guy who and she's a bit randy and uh, keeps knocking him onto the carpet to have sex with him and she complains in paris we haven't had sex since we've been in paris but when she's dancing with the professor she shouts uh, anna anna uh, your professor has has proposed uh, you know is is coming on to me is proposing <laughs> to me and she's shouting it in the middle of this crowded cafe and it's just like um it's just this amazing moment of sort of social embarrassment and drunkenness yeah. that it's just like oh man stop but at the same time thank god there are people like you in the world because you're you're cutting through this film like a knife see it is possible just to be out there living and drinking yeah. and dancing and having sex you know you don't have yeah. to be anguished no i just heard um paul schrader talking about on it was on a podcast he was talking about this film and he was saying he always watches this film when he's in pre-production um 
again because of just like how how do you do it how do you make a movie well you watch the conformers and it tells you how to make a movie which was a nice idea but he was also talking about casting and saying you know that kind of age-old idea that acting is like 90 percent casting and the casting mm. of anna is because it could go she could be really wet mm. you know she could be really kind of almost downtrodden she's not overly naive she's just charming she's sweet and she's charming in the performance and it just adds this layer of you do feel for her but you're also like you know she's gonna be fine you know like mm. she's she doesn't feel like she needs to be protected or she doesn't feel particularly like yeah kind of sad sack it's just and again it's in that performance which is so effervescent you mm. know and it just brings mm. such a such a joy to the film where yeah he's they are they, they obviously the terrible match um but he's not going to impact her life necessarily because she's she's kind of she's just okay you know and then that scene with the tango scene she's like i'm really drunk and it's like yeah but not not obnoxiously there's a real yeah. sweetness to it yeah you know? there is it's great fun you know she's a fun drunk yeah. <laughs> there's a brilliant bit where she says oh i'd love to go to the eiffel tower and he goes he goes taxi and he just puts her in the taxi and sends her to the eiffel tower and she's yeah. like aren't you coming with me <laughs> it's just yeah. like, off you go yeah, yeah. enjoy it bye <laughs> brilliant brilliant well listen neil i i I love talking about this film and I think we could talk for hours, but um, I hopefully if you haven't seen this film, we will, we will have inspired you to, to go off and, and, uh, and watch it straight away. If you have seen this film, hopefully we've inspired a rewatch. Cause I think mm. this is definitely a movie. Every time you see it, you see multiple, there are so many layers. You can unpeel this movie uh, and you'll never get to the, you know, it's like an onion. The the, the onion is the layers. You know, mm. there's not, there's nothing else there. It's just going on and on and on. Um, I wanted to ask you as final question, Neil, is uh, if you've got an uh, Italian film, maybe people are um, uh, not so familiar with, or or I I'm not sure how familiar people are these days with The Conformist anyway, I tell you the truth. But have you got a, another Italian film you'd like to suggest? Oh, that's a big... That's a big shout, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. I was not prepped. Um, I yeah, I, I never, I never prep anyone. It's, it's. You could, you could say it's a lack of organisation on my part. <laughs> I think I'll go for um, something recent, mm. um, and this is just literally the first thing that popped to mind, sure. which is. Um, uh, Gianfranco Rossi's um, Fire at Sea mm, the uh, documentary. Which is a documentary from 2016 um, and it's about um, Lampedusa um, and kind of the migrant crisis um, and I think that I mean it's just it's a wonderful film um, and it's again kind of it's you know it could be called a poetic or experimental documentary in many ways but it's very much a you know a film which is using cinema and cinematic techniques to get to a kind of a human truth about the plight of um migrants through europe but also the the impact in terms of the people and the landscape of lampedusa um you know and how it kind of responded you know kind of 
and how Italy responded through Lampedusa. Kind of, it's a really fascinating movie. And again, similar to The Conformist, there's no easy, there's no easy judgment uh, mm-hmm. on any side. You know, it kind of captures the complexity by sort of focusing on the sort of the messy humanity of everyone involved. And yeah, it's just an extraordinary film. And you know, again, was was similar to The Conformist. Was an introduction to a filmmaker that I just had no no knowledge of but have since become you know sort of um really interested in and 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 notorno which is you know another one of his is an absolutely wonderful documentary so yeah but fire at sea i would say i don't know if that's come up yet um no no not at all i uh i interviewed gianfranco uh rossi um a few years ago it was uh it was on the release of um notorno um which should be available somewhere on it was a video interview so it should be out there somewhere um but uh yeah he's a, he's a really interesting guy uh he won the golden lion at venice a few years ago for um uh oh, it's it was a film about the circular road <laughs> that goes around rome <laughs> which he uses as a sort of organizing principle to sort of pick out five or six different individuals or different stories that uh you know are in this area so it's uh, you know it's the the sort of ring road um is just is it's kind of just a random way of getting getting into these people's lives uh yeah. but yeah he's certainly someone who is available on streaming services services and uh his dvds i think have been have been released quite widely as well thanks so much for that neil i really appreciate it and where uh, let, let's uh plug uh the um cinematologists everywhere you get your pods cinematologist.com and then, yeah, all the usual places. We are, I think this will be going out just before our new season, which starts at the beginning of Feb. So we're back sort of the beginning of Feb with a new season. Um, but yeah, you can catch us, um, catch us wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, Cinematologist. And um, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me, John. It's always, always lovely to talk to you. Um, and this was really fun. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Arrivederci ragazzi, ci vediamo in un prossimo film. Lo speriamo.